Our sermon series is Parables of Jesus. Do you have a file? And we've been going through, systematically, been going through our parables of Jesus. And as we moved through them, I had hoped to really push this uh, parable back a little bit. But then when I heard Bruce McClarty give this sermon, I couldn't help but preach it. So I'd like to give Bruce McClarty all the credit for coming up with these thoughts about this sermon. It's really the parable of the Good Samaritan, and if you would, access a Bible to Luke 10, 25 through 37. The title is, Do You Have a File for That? Gordon, if you would, please come up and read this parable for us. If you were raised in the Church of Christ, or taking it a step outside, if you were raised in any of the Protestant denominations that have come into existence in the last 500 years since Martin Luther, chances are very good you have heard at least one sermon every year preached on the Good Samaritan. There are other select parables of which that is true also. But the Good Samaritan is one that, it's a standard. And you've probably heard one sermon every year preached on this. That does not diminish the importance. That does not diminish any of those single sermons. Let's read it one more time. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus asked. How do you read it? And the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your spirit and strength, and with all your mind. And then, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looked at him and said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself and his life. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothing, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he paused but he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite came down the same road. And when he came to the place, he stopped and looked, and he too passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, 
came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, a handful of coins, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he asked, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which one of these, Jesus asked the man, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him simply, go and do likewise. Amen. Bruce McClarty says this parable has proven to be very easy and very difficult at the same time. The story is vivid and accessible, but it also defines mast defies mastery. There is something more than I can completely get my hands on in this parable. Well, I started wondering myself, how many times have I preached this parable from to this church? So I called our sermon statistician, Jack King, and I said, Jack, how many times have I preached this? Jack said, well, let me go find out, Keith. So he went to his Bible, and if you don't know, Jack writes down the date and who was giving the sermon on a specific date with, along with the Scripture, alongside the Scripture in his Bible. So he told me in 2011, I talked about this Scripture about hospitality. And then 2014, a sermon titled, Who's in the Ditch? And then on 2015, Making a Difference. And today, we'll be talking about it, a file for that. So... In six years, one month, and two days, I will have preached this parable four times. But really, it just keeps shedding new light on parts of my life. How about you? Well, why is this parable so compelling, ladies? What makes it so compelling to each one of us? I believe it's because we can find ourselves in this parable. Jericho is just 17 miles from Jerusalem, east by northeast. Jerusalem is at 2,500 feet above sea level, and Jericho is 700 feet. So when Scripture says they went down, they literally went down to Jericho. It was a desolate place then. It's a desolate place now. It was a dangerous road to travel then, and it is still today a dangerous road to travel by yourselves. But what makes this parable so accessible to us is because we can identify with it, right? Because we can identify with being a victim, We've all been beat up sometime in our life. We've all been mistreated and left beside the road. At least we've been misunderstood at times. We've all been defeated 
before, knowing that we needed help, that we, at least sometime in our life, we've been the victim and been abandoned, right? And we've all also been apathetic. We've also been the Levite and the priest who saw something needing to be done. We've all been there. We've seen it. We thought we should do that. I should help. But for whatever apathetic reason, we walk by on the other side of the road. We don't do what we should, Don, and someone goes unhelped, still hurting, because maybe it costs too much. Maybe it's too risky. Maybe it takes too much energy to help those who are in the ditch. Or maybe, maybe you can identify with the Good Samaritan. I, I hope this morning that each one of you sometime in your life has been the good Samaritan, that you've found somebody in a ditch, you've found somebody that's been beaten and abused and neglected and, and left alone, and you've come alongside them, and you've done something good for them. And Alex, if you can't have one of those thoughts, if you don't have one of those thoughts, we might need to reconsider our Christian walk. Amen, right? Some people identify with different parts of this story. A grandfather, one time after church, sitting around the dinner table, looked over to his granddaughter and said, Honey, what was the favorite part of the story this morning in your Sunday morning class? And she goes, Oh, we studied about that guy who got beat up. And he said, You did? He said, Who is your favorite part of that story? Not wanting to miss a single teaching moment with his grandchild, and she said, oh, that's easy, the donkey. <laughs> so I hope this morning you identify with some part of this story. But what I don't want to do with this story is what Fred Craddock says. A minister boils down the parable to the stain at the bottom of the cup. This morning, I don't want to do that. I don't want to reduce this parable down to a simple three points and let's go home. No, what I really want to do is, is look at this as a jewel, a, a, like a diamond that, that you shine light through, and as you shine light through it, it reflect, refracts light to different parts of the room and illuminates things in different ways every time that you shine the light through it. I'd like for you to take this jewel of a parable and look at it through new light, through a different light this morning. Well, as you study this, as you read this parable, the first thing you notice is this lawyer seems to want to get to heaven. He asks a great question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And But just a little while longer and you realize that he's really putting Christ to the test. And then much, not much longer, you realize he's wishing to justify himself. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
By the end of the parable, you realize just how prejudiced and just how bigoted this man is when he can't answer the, in the name of a Samaritan at the end and has to say, oh, the one who showed mercy. Have you ever noticed that, David? He can't even get himself to say Samaritan. I want to talk about the question that Jesus doesn't answer. And this is nothing new, really. John 8, the Pharisees ask the, Jesus about the law of Moses. You remember the story. They've taken a woman caught in adultery, and they've thrown her down in a Sunday morning uh, Bible class in front of Jesus. And they said, well, well, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus doesn't really answer. He asks a question, really, of who has the right to. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. The wrong question leaves you in the wrong place. Do you hear that? The wrong question will leave you in the wrong place. Even a wrong question with a right answer still leaves you in the wrong place. And, and Jesus won't be left there, not in this story and not in many times. Take Mark 4, 38. The apostles ask, don't you care that we're perishing? Because they're going down in a boat in a storm. And Jesus answers back with a question. Why are you still afraid? And don't you, don't you have more faith than that? And how about Mark 7 and 5? The Pharisees asked Jesus, why aren't you and your disciples keeping the tradition of the elders? And Jesus looks back and says, you honor me with your lips, but your heart's far from me. Why is it that you keep the traditions of men and you leave the commandments of God? You see, even a good answer to the wrong question leaves us in the wrong place. The man wants to put limits on his responsibility. What's the passing grade is really what he's asking here. What's the least I can get away with? Bruce McCarty tells a story of his, uh, one of his history professors there. It ends up being the, the head of the history department for a while at, the, at, the, uh, at Harding University. And he tells this, to the, this story to the freshmen to give them hope if they're failing their first semester. He says, my first semester, he said, things didn't go really well. He said, uh, I went home for Christmas and I brought with me a grade point average of 1.19. I don't know about you, but at the Castleman house... Children would be put under lock and key, and everything would be taken from them. But this young man, this history professor in his first semester, has scored a 1.19 out of 4. His dad tells him, son, 
if you don't make a better grade, if you don't lift that up to at least a 2.0, you're not going to be returning to Harding the next year. So the young man goes back. And guess what he scores the next semester? A 2.00. Just what he had to, just so he could go back to Harding because he didn't want to waste one brain cell more than he had to. Well, the right question is not who is our neighbor? The right question is how can I be a neighbor? How can I practice loving a neighbor to the fullest degree? What does look what does it look like to be a good neighbor to those around me? Grieven in the theological dictionary of the New Testament says that one cannot define one's neighbor. One can only be a neighbor. Daryl Brock said, I might add in the God, excuse me, Daryl Brock says, Neighbors can come from surprising places. And might I add, in the Gospels, faith, virtue, and kingdom heroes come from some of the most surprising places. Bruce McClarty tells a story about Kent Bradley the first ever Christian missionary to come to the United States infected with Ebola. This Abilene Christian University graduate was flown from Liberia to Atlanta, to Emory University Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. The public relations department at Emory University Hospital can tell you that the first reaction in the public media was ugly, saying that they should not come here. They should not bring him here. Statements like, if he goes to places like that, he deserves what he gets. Mind you, this was a Christian doctor doing Christian mission work in a clinic in Liberia, Africa. But it was good science to bring him here. Most people don't know it, but Emory Hospital would go through each month the scenario of this very happening. They have trained for it for years. It was good science to bring him here, and by bringing him here, they might learn things that would save many. Well, Dr. McClarty says months after he had recovered, he wanted to talk to Kent. He wanted the students at the, at the university, at Harding, to hear from Kent and, and his experience and how he worked through it. So he went, and, and he and some others from Harding went to their house, flew to their town, picked them up, took them back to Harding, and Kent spoke in front of the Harding University. He told of how he contracted the disease. He told them heart-wrenching stories of how he got on 
the phone and he expressed to his family that he had Ebola and it didn't look good and they cried together on the phone. He talked about being so weak that those nurses who he worked alongside for so long soon were diapering him because he no longer had the ability to take care of himself laying in a bed. It wasn't long and he needed transfusions. At first they took it from the blood bank because they had enough. But then the blood bank started to run out. So those in the clinic donated their blood. His co-workers donated their own blood to him so he could live. And then when the third transfusion was needed, a 14-year-old boy who had contracted Ebola earlier and lived through it, wanted to give back, wanted to say thank you, wanted to, to, to give to the cause of healing people and wanted his blood to go to Kent. And Dr. McCarty says, and this is where I had my Good Samaritan moment because Kent Bradley, Dr. Kent Bradley said, and this young 14-year-old Muslim wanted to give me his blood. And Bruce said, you know, for the first time in my life, I think maybe I understood how the lawyers and how the Pharisees and how everyone around him felt when he said, but the Samaritan, but the Samaritan stopped and went to him and took care of him and bandaged him. For the first time in my life, the word was shocking enough that I had a Good Samaritan parable moment. This morning, what might it take for you to have a Good Samaritan parable moment? What if Christ had said, but a North Korean leader came upon the beaten man and bandaged his wounds? What if I said, but then a Nazi came alongside and bandaged his wounds? What if he said, and then an ISIS member came along and bandaged his wounds? You fill in the blank. Who is your Samaritan this morning? This parable begs us to see something good in those we don't agree with. This parable demands that we, as disciples of Christ, look at the world differently than the rest of the world. Amen? This parable demands there is something virtuous in all people. Everyone has the capacity to do good. Everyone has the value of being a child of God. Amen? Somewhere around 2002, educators started using a metaphor for understanding called folders. And they started 
giving children an understanding of how to compartmentalize some of their knowledge because they knew when you had a, a compartment to put your knowledge in that you could retain it better and use it better. Like if, if you taught a child algebra and how to use mathemat mathematical formulas to solve problems in life, then they had a math folder. Or, or you taught a child the understanding of debits and credits after a while, they would have an accounting folder. If you create a mental folder, then you have the capacity to learn and grow. And Jesus seems to be doing the same thing here with the Samaritan. He's giving us a new folder, a new way to look at people like we've never seen them before. But doesn't doesn't this happen all the way through the book of Luke? How about Mary, this little unwed, pregnant peasant girl who says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Do we have the kind of submissiveness and the kind of faith to let God use us however he sees fit? And how about Luke 5, 27? Levi, the tax collector, a traitor to the occupying forces. And Jesus said, follow me. And he dropped everything and followed him. David, do I have faith like that? And how about Luke 7 and 9, the satyrian soldier of the occupying Roman army? Do you think there was a little bit of animosity there? I mean, if the Russians came and took us over and started running our streets and telling us what to do, you think there'd be a little animosity there? And this Roman centurion walks up to Jesus and says, my beloved servant is dying. Would you... Would you heal him? And I know that you don't even have to touch him. You can just say it and it will happen. And it did. And Jesus says to this centurion, I tell you, not even in all of Israel have I found such faith. Or how about in Luke 7, 47 through 48, a sinful woman at the feet of Jesus with an alabaster vial of perfume wiping his feet, a humble, thankful servant heart that she had. Jesus tells her, I tell you that her sins are forgiven, which are many, for she loved much. And how about Luke 8 and 48, the bleeding woman who can forget her story. The unclean woman who, who risked everything in a crowd where she shouldn't have been, with people she shouldn't have been around, and she reaches out and she touches the hem of his garment, taking on a huge risk to be seen and realized. And Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go 
and peace. How about Luke 17 and the untouchables? Ten lepers, one he replies to, rise up, go your way. Your faith has made you well. How about those fraudulent, traitorous people like in Luke 19, Zacchaeus, who says, I I repent. I'll give back to the poor, and I'll repay anybody that I've defrauded. And Christ tells him, Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house today. And how about 2 Luke 1 and 8? Boy, I didn't see enough eyebrows raised. There is no second Luke. There is the book of Acts, though, that Luke wrote. Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 1, verse 8. Christ tells them that they're going to take the word to everyone. And some of these people, they're not going to agree with. They're not going to like. They're not going to to identify with, right? Because he tells them, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and, oh, I've got more Bible students in here than that, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. When Christ said Samaria, do you think possibly Peter went, huh? Do you think Matthew maybe reached over and grabbed Bartholomew's shoulder and said, what did he say? Samaria. Bruce McClarty says, there is a lot of spiritual blindness in this world because we simply don't have folders for some of the important things we need to see. The essence of bigotry and racism is that I don't have a folder for any of the good things that at least some members of a particular group of people do. You think that's still true for us? Do you need a folder this morning? Maybe you're, maybe you're a, an abused woman and you need a folder for good men, right? Maybe you're a man who's been mistreated and your loyalty has been put to shame and you need a folder for good women. Some of you this morning have given up, need a folder for good white people. Some of you may need to take on a new folder for good black people. I met a man one time who his daughter had been accosted by a Latino man. And so now, everyone who is Latin is bad, is just like that guy. And that guy has no redeeming values at all. 
Maybe you need a folder for good Democrats. Don't worry, I'm equal. Some of you need a good folder for good Republicans, right? Can I tell you that I have seen on Facebook in the last week some of the ugliest things said about political people in political parties as if the entire party thought that way or was that way? Maybe we need a folder for this. Good immigrants. I can tell you that I have sat through some very uncomfortable conversations, even in our fellowship hall, with people who did not realize that my wife was a foreigner. Maybe we need a new folder for immigrants. Maybe we need a folder for good prisoners. Can I tell you in my ministry, I have met a few people who could quote Scripture who were in prison, in jail, who could quote Scripture better than I could. And they had made some mistakes in life. And can I tell you, their mistakes probably weren't even as worse as some of my mistakes. They just, Alex, got caught at it. Maybe you need a folder for this. A good politician. Because they're out there. And there is good. There is something virtuous in everyone. How about good rich people? Hmm. On the other side of that fence, how about a folder for good poor people? Might I remind you there is nothing wrong with being poor. You can be a wonderful child of God and be dirt poor. Amen? And I remember... I needed a folder for this at one time. By the way, this is spelled correctly. Because I looked it up. And there are good, uneducated people also. Right? But sometimes we don't act that way. We don't talk that way. And we forget there is something virtuous in all people. I think Jesus' parable here takes us full circle back to, this, back to this lawyer. And it asks him, are you a good neighbor? This morning, are you a good neighbor? If you're sleeping at this point of the sermon, if you're daydreaming at this point of the sermon, wake up. Because I want you to hear this. Are you a good neighbor? Because we all need to internalize this question and live it out. Amen? Randy Harris says of this parable, Our understanding of this parable doesn't come primarily from scholarship. It primarily comes from discipleship. Living this. Right? Because he says, you go and do likewise. This sermon is worthless, meaningless, 
if you walk out those doors and it doesn't transform you. Because Christ is leaving you with a question and a command. Are you a good neighbor? You go and do likewise. The challenge is to be Christ-like. The challenge is to be transformed into his likeness. I don't know where you are this morning in your walk with Christ. If you need to put him on in baptism, we're here to do that for you. If you need to repent of a sin, we're here to help and pray with you. There will be at least one kind elder at the back that if you want to talk to him about it, that's great. If you feel like you need to make a a public confession, these front chairs are for you. Won't you come as we stand and we sing? My hope is built on 